and invite you um, to turn in your worship folder to our passage this morning. Uh, if you're looking at it going, is that it? Uh, yes, that's really it. Um, we've got a single verse that it's going to take us about an hour and a half to talk about. Um, I'm just kidding. Randy's gone. Like I said, no. Um, sorry, low blow. Uh, so we're, we're opening, introducing the book of James, and this will take us, if, I don't even know how long, probably a couple months to go through. Um, but James 1.1, that's what we're going to be uh, studying this morning. And so if you would, uh, would you please stand with me as I read God's word. And let me pray for us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of life that it is to us and the way that it points us towards life in you, Jesus. And we pray that you would soften our hearts, open our ears and our eyes, that we might see and hear you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is God's inspired word for you this morning. Please have a seat. I like that some of you are, are laughing already. That's um, great because, I mean, it's, it is the Bible, but um, we can still enjoy this together. Uh, so maybe, maybe you were like me. Many of us were sort of raised, or, or maybe you raised your own children, um, something like this, often saying, you know, like, good Christians don't do blank, right? Uh, for, for maybe back in your day, it was, you know, don't drink or smoke or chew or go with people who do. Does that sound familiar? I, I can't believe people used to say that, but they did. Um, and, and much of what was taught was really kind of sound advice, right? Um, unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is that those were just reactionary to whatever the popular thing of the day was. Like back in my day, my day, um, I'm older than some of you and not as old as some of you, so just keep that in mind. Um, you know, my parents didn't allow us to do certain things. Like, I wasn't allowed to read the Harry Potter series. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. Um, everybody else was allowed to do those things except for me and the people in my house because we were a good Christian family, and good Christians don't do those things, which apparently everybody else was doing. And the funny thing is, and you probably have experienced this before, as soon as someone tells you you can't do something, at the first opportunity, that's what you want to do. Like you kind of creep up closer and closer. You know, there's this curiosity inside of us that goes, well, really, what's so bad about this thing that everybody else gets to enjoy, right? Like why do we have a blanket prohibition, especially, and I'll say especially when we don't explain why it is that we aren't to do those things, right? If you just tell someone don't do that or tell that to a child, almost guaranteed the minute you turn your back, that's what they're going to do, right? And I think all of us are like that. Now, what was kind of funny or um, ironic is that, that my parents who forbid us from reading Harry Potter in my house were also the same parents, grandparents who introduced Harry Potter to my children, <laughs> you know, 30 years later. So, you know, thanks. One thing I was allowed to watch when I was a little bit older was Star Wars. I don't know if any of you have seen Star Wars. It's kind of a classic. Um, and they've remade some of these 
Uh, they've taken the Star Wars stories and they've remade some, uh, some series out of them on Disney+, Plus, which are really fantastically done. Uh, but one of these series is about a group of people called the Mandalore. And if you're not familiar with the Mandalore, they're sort of a, a, like a warrior um, cult slash religion of people who follow a group or, or really an order, a series of rules that they would call the way. And, and so the way of the Mandalorian, um, they have a, a few things that they all agree to. One of the things that they agree to is that in, in times of conflict, which the Mandalorians are these, you know, pretty, I to be careful what I say, pretty awesome, you know, again, armor-clad, helmet-wearing people who, like, zoom in to conflict zones, and they fight, and they help protect people who are being oppressed and who are defenseless, and they seek out these people they called foundlings, which really are orphans, and they protect them. They take them under their care. And, and, the, and that is the way of the Mandalorian to care for these orphans or these foundlings. Another thing that makes them unique is that they cannot remove their helmets in the presence of any other sentient being. Remember, this is Star Wars, so there's lots of different types of beings. right? Um, these are people who wear a helmet all the time and who nobody is allowed to see their face. Even their loved ones, they can't take it off to eat, they can't take it off to drink. The only time they can remove their helmet is, is when no one else is around. And when they, when they see each other, these Mandalorian figures, they have a phrase that they say, if you're familiar with it. They say, this is the way, to which the response is, anybody know? This is the way. You guys have to watch The Mandalorian, I'm sorry. Um, this is the way, right? This is the way. And if, as we read the book of James, you're wondering, how does any of this apply, right? Why do we like this book, this book of James? If you're like me, anyone ever read the book of James? If you haven't, it'll take you about 10 minutes, okay, you can read the whole book. Again, it's going to take us months to unpack. Now, why do we like this book so much? I think one of the reasons is it's very tactile, by which I mean, like, we can, we can feel it, we can touch it. James is called practical theology. This isn't theology like, like stuff that's like very super hyper intellectual. It's not way over our heads. It's not something that we have to sit and ponder and think, well, gosh, I wonder what that means. The book of James is giving us lots of things that we can do. It's not really for thinkers. It's for doers, right, in, in, a, in a sense. And as we read it, we find these principles and rules for the life of the Christian. And, and all of us, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, we all want to know what the rules are of life. And it's almost as if James is answering the question, what is the way of the Christian by saying, this is the way? Um, but before we go further, you might be thinking, hey, I know that phrase isn't the way Jesus, right? Anybody think that immediately? Like Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And there's not really another answer. He doesn't leave it open-ended. He doesn't say, I'm a way or I'm one of the ways, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no qualifications. And you're absolutely right if you think that, right? That Jesus is himself the way to life. But James isn't telling us what we have to do to receive the grace of God. Okay, he's not telling us what we have to do to earn salvation from God. He's not giving us a prescription like, hey, take this medicine and your life is going to be better, Instead, what he's doing is he's painting us a picture. He's giving us a description of what the way of Jesus 
looks like. This is not how we get to God, but this is what it looks like once God has gotten to us. Does that make sense? Right? This isn't something, these, these aren't a list of rules that we have to do. And so just, just keep that in mind as we talk throughout this series, as we look at these very practical things, this is not a checklist. And we all want a checklist. We want to know, what do I have to do? That's a great question that the, the rich young ruler came up and asked Jesus. What do I have to do to get eternal life? The book of James is not that answer. But this, the answer, the question that this book is answering is, if I have Jesus, how should I live? Right? If I already have Jesus, what should my life look like? What is the way of the follower of Jesus? And so this morning we're going to talk about three things very quickly. Not really very quickly. We're going to talk about three things. Um, and then we're going to spend the next several months unpacking the rest of this book. Um, so the first thing is that all Christians are servants of God. Number one, all Christians are servants of God. Now another TV show that we've been watching recently, just discovered, maybe you've seen this before, is this amazing Japanese documentary slash reality show called Old Enough. You ever seen this show? Awesome. Um, this is an incredible show where parents, really mothers, take their very young children, like two, three, and four years old, and they send them on errands for them. Like, and this isn't just, hey, go down the hall and, and fetch me a glass of water. This is, um, I need you to go to the store, which, inqui- which requires like crossing the street, taking the ferry, getting on the bus, taking a train, um, and pick up this, this, and this. They give them a list. And then you have to stop by grandma's house on the way home. And then, oh, by the way, we need a little bundle of firewood, so would you pick that up for me as well? And these children, again, two years old, three years old, four years old, jump at the chance to be a grown-up, and they go, yeah, I'm so excited, let's do this. And and so the show has a a secret camera crew that is filming these children as they walk around and perform these adult chores. It is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Because you have kids that, you know, they can't sometimes even physically do what has been asked of them to do. Now, apparently in Japan, this is sort of a tradition in families, that children are expected to contribute within their family at a very young age. So you might see toddlers walking to the store by themselves with cash from mom and dad to get ramen or something, whatever it is that they want, and bring it back home. And so this show is is depicting that because the, the, the creators are saying, well, we're sort of losing this tradition in Japan because, you know, like there's so many people and it's very dangerous and, you know, kids are getting hit by cars or whatever. You know, like a lot of families are very worried. And we would never do this in America, right? We would never, ever do that. And the, and the striking thing about this is that the children never see their tasks as burdens. What they're effectively doing is they're becoming servants of their parents and yet they don't look at their work as difficult. Like they're excited that they were invited to take part in the life of the family and to serve them in this way. Now James is sort of saying the same thing about what it is like to be a servant of God. Right, James isn't saying that in order to be saved, we have to be servants. As if God is too busy and needs us to do some stuff for him. Instead, what he's saying is that because we are saved, we have the privilege and the honor of getting to serve our family. That we get to join God in his good work in 
the world. You know, God didn't choose us because he was lacking something. You know, he, he needed you to be on his dodgeball team, and so he picked you and not someone else. That's not what the life of the Christian looks like. But he chooses us because he is worthy and we are lacking. And James is writing primarily to a group of, of Jewish Christians who are operating and they're used to this system of works-based righteousness and also rampant hypocrisy. That's what was going on in first century Judaism. The religious leaders, those would be the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, they talked quite a lot about loving God, about loving their neighbors. But when you looked at the actual contents of what they did, like when you looked at their lives, the only thing that they loved was themselves. They loved to sit around and talk theology. They could do that all day long. Bible studies, they were there. Reading scripture, they were there. And yet, the only people that they loved were themselves. So these were people who loved to be caught doing good things. Right? They loved to be seen giving to the poor. They loved to be seen giving large sums of money to the temple. They loved to be seen in worship. They loved to be seen praying these amazing elaborate prayers to God. But really, those were just sort of acts of tokenism. Right? They, were, they were virtue signaling to others, saying, hey, look at me. Look how amazing of a follower of God I am. And yet their hearts were only about themselves. So the Jewish religious leaders proved that it was possible to, quote-unquote, believe the right theology without knowing and loving God. You can do religion without having a heart that's been transformed by God. People have been doing this forever. Right? And that's sort of the danger for us. So let's answer a question real quickly. Who is James? Um, this is appropriate because this is sort of an introductory lesson. Uh, so James, the one thing that we find about him in this book is that his name is James. That's it. He gives no other qualifications. All he calls himself is a servant. Now, this is a super common name at the time, so we have some different possibilities. Uh, some people think that this is James, the brother of John. They were known as the Sons of Thunder, one of the Twelve Apostles. If you have read the book of Acts in chapter 12, that James is killed by Herod. Another possibility is James, the, um, the son of Alphaeus. And we really don't know anything about that James at all, except for the fact that he has the name James. Um, there's some other options, but historically and um, traditionally, the church has attributed this book to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, scripture tells us that although he was Jesus' brother, right? we say half-brother because um, Jesus was born of Virgin Mary, so they shared the same mom, different dads. You know, Jesus' father was God, and James's father was Joseph. Okay, that's what we mean by that. Uh, but Scripture tells us that even though they grew up in the same house, they probably shared the same bed, they definitely shared the same table, that James didn't believe that Jesus was God. In fact, uh, in Mark chapter 3, right after Jesus calls the 12 disciples, there's this big group of people that are gathering around Jesus because they've seen these miracles and they, and they, and they want some healing. And, and this whole crowd is gathering around. And James and his mother and his other brothers go out to seize Jesus, like grab him and stop his work because it says that they thought he was out of his mind. James thought Jesus was crazy. See, it's not just that he didn't have faith in Jesus, it's that he was 
actively working to stop the ministry of Jesus. But in spite of this, we find that after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his brother. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And he soon became a leader in the Jerusalem church. In fact, there's this big, great big controversy about what to do with the Gentiles. And as, as Paul and uh, Silas come back to Jerusalem, they convene this council of apostles and other leaders. And James, the brother of Jesus, is the one that is leading the church in Jerusalem. James went from an opponent of God to a servant of God. And we read here, what is James telling us? That each one of us is just like that. See, Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that word that Jesus used, slave, is actually the same word, doulos, that is translated here as servant. That, That if we sin, we're slaves to sin. And in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says those same words echoing in them of Jesus saying that that before anyone comes to faith in Jesus, they are first slaves or servants of sin. See, everyone is either a servant or a slave of sin or a servant or slave to God. See, if we aren't serving God, then we are serving sin. And there's no other option there, right? It's just one or the other. But the type of service that's, that's asked for is not the same at all. Right? The service of sin brings what? Fear and death and destruction and everything bad in life. And yet service to Jesus brings peace and hope and joy and life with him. Right? The service of the servant of Jesus is not burdensome. It's not difficult. It's not meant to be a That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Burden again. Yeah. It's not meant to be impossible. This isn't meant to be something that drags us down. This is meant to give us life, to inflate us. And serving Jesus means following the example of Lord Jesus. Now, James started this book by using the phrase, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, he's making this really bold statement, actually. In the Roman Empire, there was one Lord, and that Lord was Caesar. And and there was a worship, really there was one religion, and the religion was the worship of Caesar. And so they would, people would come together and worship Caesar by saying, Caesar is Lord. And so by calling Jesus Lord, as opposed to Caesar, James is making an incredibly profound statement of what the church should look like. Now, a lot of times in our day, people wouldn't necessarily call Jesus Lord, Maybe you've heard people call Jesus just a good teacher, kind of a good guy. He said some great things, right? Have you seen those commercials that are on TV now called the, the He Gets Us commercials, right? Those are, those are great. But, but if we stop at, at, at thinking, like, oh, Jesus was just a good guy and he just understands who we are, man, we've missed out on so much, haven't we? Like, Jesus wasn't just a good guy. In fact, C.S. Lewis tells us there's really only three options when we think about Jesus, the first is that he was a liar, right, because he claimed to be God. Um, the second one, that he's a lunatic for thinking that he's God, and that's what James thought of his own brother. And the, and the last option is that he's Lord. There's no option of saying, well, Jesus was just a good teacher who taught some nice things, and we should all listen to what he says. Right? He's either a liar, or he's crazy, or he's God. And that's it. In Jesus' ministry, his brother tried to stop him, just like the Apostle Paul 
tried to stop the people of Jesus as they went around after Jesus' resurrection. Paul became a missionary to the Gentiles. James became the leader in the early church there in Jerusalem. And what's amazing about James is that he doesn't hold his biological relationship with Jesus above anybody. Right? Imagine if you were the brother of God. That'd be pretty cool. You probably want to tell people about it pretty often and kind of remind them anytime you didn't get what you wanted. Hey, remember who my brother is? I can just say a couple of prayers for you. Sorry, that's, that's how I would act. Right? James never does that. And so what we see is that when, he's, when his life is transformed, he becomes known as James the Just, and his life was marked by humility, holiness, and prayer. Like he was known to regularly spend hours and hours praying for those around him, praying for his unbelieving neighbors and friends. It's an amazing transformation. And why does he become like that? Why does James become a servant? Well, he saw the same thing in Jesus. In his book, James is really giving us a portrait of what the Christian life looks like. And that portrait just so happens to look an awful lot like the life of Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was the suffering servant. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that even though he was God from all eternity, that Jesus humbled himself by taking on the form of a human, and not just a human, but also a servant. Jesus said that the Son of Man, which was the name he called himself, didn't come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus told his followers that anyone who wanted to become great must first become a servant that they must deny themselves and take up their cross just like he did. Jesus showed his disciples what it looked like to live as a servant, touching the untouchable, loving the unlovable, welcoming the outcast, patiently dealing with the ignorant, seeking out the wayward, washing the filthy feet of the proud, and even enduring a humiliating death on a Roman cross. For anyone who would receive him as Lord, So Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is also a servant. And those who receive him are invited into that same life of servanthood that Jesus showed for us. Now third and finally, James shows us that serving in the way of Jesus confirms, not secures, our identity in Christ. Our identity in the family of God. See, James ends his brief introduction by by using these words. He says, greetings to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, this is a little bit strange because usually as we read through the epistles, we find that these are letters that are written to a specific church, a specific place, or a particular people, and we often find names. And here James is using what appears to be an ethnic group of people as his audience, the 12 tribes. These would be the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. And then as we read the rest of the book of James, we find that this is a pretty different book from the rest of the New Testament. Um, It sounds as if, um, and it has been referred to as the most Jewish of all of the New Testament books. At at times it sounds like the, the pages are taken right out of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, or maybe the book of Psalms. And some have called it just, you know, this series of wisdom pearls that are thrown out that we're supposed to kind of gobble up. And and they don't really see any connection with the rest of the New Testament. In fact, the the late great reformer Martin Luther um, hated, hated 
the book of James. He couldn't stand it. He said of James, it mingles the scriptures and it opposes Paul and all of scripture. And he called it an epistle of straw. That's not a compliment. So why is Luther saying this? Well, it's because it was so difficult for Luther to to reconcile this picture of what the gospel looks like with his rejection of, at the time, uh, hypocrisy and also um, this idea that works-based righteousness was how you made your way to God. That's what he faced in that church at the time in the Roman church. It had happened in Judaism and it happened in Rome. It still happens today that, that religious people have a tendency to confuse what our transformed lives should look like with how we are to live after we get that life transformed. You know, we start thinking, all of us, you know, I kind of earned this. I deserve this. You know, God's kind of lucky to have me on his team. The most well-known phrase in the book of James is faith without works is dead. And, and to, to Luther, who had proclaimed his, his, uh, this salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone, this was almost like a slap in the face. Now, anything that even sounded like works or deeds didn't sit well with him. But, but James, of course, isn't saying this is how we earn it, right? But rather, this is what it looks like. How we live shows who we are, that we are actually members of God's family, that we are part of those 12 tribes of the dispersion. And dispersion just means scattered. Right? The early church, after um, the death of Jesus, after the death of Stephen, after the death of James, scattered. People were terrified. If they could kill Jesus, if they could kill Stephen, if they could kill James, what might they do to me? And so we see that these first century Christians who start in in Jerusalem begin to spread throughout the empire of Rome. But as they scattered, they continued to tell other people about Jesus, and that family of God continued to grow. And James isn't saying that, that... the 12 tribes are just these ethnically Jewish people. But they're followers of God and they're lovers of Jesus. See, God's people have dispersed and they no longer have a singular home on earth because their true home is now the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven. See, Hebrews says that the true saints in the Old Testament were strangers and exiles on the earth. Peter says that we are all sojourners and exiles and Galatians calls all believers in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, both the children of Abraham. Remember, may remember that Jesus told the crowd of people that gathered around him that he could raise up children of Abraham out of rocks. Because although they were ethnically descendants of Abraham, really who they were children of was Satan. That's pretty harsh words. See, in a very real sense, what James is telling us is there's, there's no longer really a holy land. But instead, we have a holy God who reigns supreme over every land. See, everyone who trusts in Jesus, everyone who's placed their faith in him as their Lord, are now part of this chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That's from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. You are part of God's family. And as C.S. Lewis wrote, we were actually created and made for another world 
where we will be forever with Jesus our Lord. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this reminder of who you are and who we are. Lord, that we are nothing more than servants of Jesus, who himself came to serve us. Lord, who knew that that we could not earn this gift of grace. And so he came and made the way for us. Lord, as your family, as your children, we, we pray that you would lead us in your ways. We thank you that you've invited us into your work. We thank you that you've shown us how we can live to, to please you. Lord, we pray that you give us the power to do so through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.